A number of years ago, when I was a producer at a public television station, I also wrote articles for the station's monthly magazine. And I decided I would like to write an article about an unusual group therapy program. It was therapy for people who were still trying to recover from abuse and neglect they'd experienced when they were children. And my article was supposed to tell their stories, to trace a path that ran from cruelty to devastation and paralysis to intervention and hopefully healing. I took my idea to the people who ran the therapy program, and I knew right away they'd be concerned about the privacy of their clients, and they would insist that I get uh, releases, signed releases from everybody. But as it turned out, that wasn't their primary concern. They were worried about what the presence of a reporter would do to the therapy. They were afraid I might make people uncomfortable and inhibit participation. So they told me, if I wanted to do it, I'd have to become a participant myself and go through the same routine that everybody else was going through. I'd have to write about the program from the inside, not just as an observer looking in voyeuristically from the sidelines. The therapy was held at a beautiful mountaintop retreat, but it was very intense. It was five days of graphic memories, violent emotions, and a series of psychological unveilings that were unlike anything I'd ever experienced as a writer and producer. At times, it was intimidating. I grew up in a safe, loving environment, and it was hard for me to be among people who had been through so much violence and cruelty as children and who were nursing such horrific wounds. To help people like that, you have to be sympathetic and caring and at the same time uncompromisingly tough. You have to earn their confidence and their respect. Well, one evening, the group facilitator asked me to work with a young man named Peter by joining him in a role play. In the role play, I was supposed to be a stand-in for Peter's father, a sadistic, ill-tempered alcoholic who died before Peter reached manhood, and that means, of course, before Peter ever had a chance to confront him. In the role play, I was given only a few lines to say. They were things Peter had heard his father say to him, humiliating things things that hurt him deeply. Then the facilitator encouraged Peter to respond to his father's words and say the things that he had never had a chance to say before. And so Peter vented the full force of his anguish and his anger on me. It was in my face, accusations, obscenities, a long list of the terrible things the man I was impersonating had done. Peter's mouth was twisted and distorted with rage. His eyes were on fire with a passion for revenge. But I stood there stoically and never looked away until finally he was exhausted and his anger dissolved into tears. Then we sat down and there was a long silence. 
After the role play, we were supposed to talk with Peter about how he felt after saying all those things. Before we began that discussion, however, the facilitator stood up to remind us that Peter's anger had not really been directed at me. I was not Peter's father, she said. I was Fritz, a member of the group who had done this difficult thing out of a concern for helping Peter. As she spoke, I could see everybody nodding in sympathetic agreement. I guess they were glad they didn't get that role. And I went immediately from being the object of hatred and anger to being surrounded by gratitude and support. In case there had been any doubt about it, I knew then that I was a member of that group. In the discussion that followed, Peter expressed the hope that now that he had said these things, maybe he could get on with taking better care of himself. His memories and his anger had been holding him hostage, and it was time for him to take charge of his past and begin living his own life. The group, of course, prodded him to say just exactly how he was going to do this. It was a good discussion. And then when it was over, Peter came to me in tears. He took my hands in his, and he thanked me for playing that role. He said it was one of the most meaningful things anyone had ever done for him. When I went to bed that night, I was exhausted, and my emotional defenses were shattered. I had a reaction that completely took me by surprise. I climbed into bed, I put my head down on the pillow, and I began to weep. I wept silently. There was no sobbing. I wasn't in anguish. In fact, it was amazingly peaceful. What I felt was a combination of profound sadness and overwhelming joy. The tears poured out, and it went on for a long time. I have never in my life before or after gone anything through anything quite like this. I made no effort to hold them back. And finally, I fell asleep. And when I woke up the next morning, I realized that I had slept soundly through the night. I showered and dressed, went down for breakfast. A woman from my group who had witnessed the role play brought her tray over to the table and sat down across from me. I noticed that she was looking at me and I felt a little uneasy about that. Of course, I had showered, I had washed my face, but could she tell? You look different this morning, she said. Oh? Yeah, she said. You look wonderful. It was an amazing week, a week of contradictions, hurt and kindness, loneliness and community. There was so much pain, so much sadness in the stories people had to tell, and yet in the middle of it all, I felt incredibly peaceful. Vulnerable, but strong, too. It was a wonderful way of being. It's a way I've discovered I would like to experience not just on special occasions, but day to day over the course of my life. I want to live in a way that embraces opposite, even contradictory emotions, attitudes, and strategies. A way of life that embraces them not by swinging from one bipolar extreme to another, but integrates 
these contradictions in a consistent and powerful response to being alive. I'm interested in living this way because I want to be in control of my life. I want to preside over my own existence and not be at the mercy of events and circumstances. For me, embracing opposites means ultimately being emotionally engaged and yet on some level also detached and transcendent. It means caring deeply and simultaneously being beyond caring. In a world where so many of us are defeated by painful experiences and circumstances, I believe it's possible to live this way, to live lives that are wonderfully satisfying, sane, and resilient. It may seem like a strange creed, but I believe in strong convictions, and I believe in skepticism. I believe in hope, and I believe in cynicism. I believe in enthusiasm and indifference, in a tender heart and a thick skin, in vulnerability and transcendence. I believe in pursuing lofty goals and dreams, and I believe in never losing touch with our own insignificance. The Greek philosopher Aristotle taught that the secret of the good life resides in avoiding extremes and choosing a reasonable middle ground. Human virtues, Aristotle said, lie at a happy midpoint between opposing vices. Courage is the golden mean between cowardice and recklessness. Modesty is the golden mean between self-disparagement and vanity. Avoid extremes, he said, and find a rational and sensible middle ground. On a theoretical level, the golden mean is a great idea. The only problem is when you try to apply it, it often doesn't work very well. Clearly, there are certain human qualities where moderation doesn't make sense because you want as much of them as you can possibly have. Intelligence, kindness, compassion, aesthetic awareness, a love of life. How can you have too much of any of these? And at times, the notion of moderation seems almost laughable. Imagine trying to tell that special person in your life that you love him or her moderately well, (laughs) and that your feelings lie halfway between passionate devotion and indifference. (laughs) In my younger days, when I was running marathons and ultra-marathons and consuming 4,000 calories a day to keep it going, I used to joke about moderation. It became my motto. I believe in moderation in all things, I would say, as long as I get enough. (laughs) What I really believe in is filling the cup of life to the top, full and running over. Even when qualities we aspire to are somehow contradictory and in tension with one another, we want them all. And why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we burn the candle at both ends? My belief in living lives that encompass contradictory attitudes goes back to a time many years ago when my Christian beliefs came apart. That was a devastating time for me. 
My confidence in the Bible and the things I had been taught to believe disintegrated, as did my belief in a heavenly Father who made everything and was watching over us. Terrible feelings of emptiness swept over me. It felt as if a loving presence had gone out of the universe. And the emptiness I felt wasn't just an emptiness somewhere out there beyond the stars. It was an emptiness inside me, an emptiness I felt. I no longer believed, as I once did, that I was on this planet because God put me here or because it was part of God's plan. I felt diminished. The whole universe was an accident, a cosmic, unplanned pregnancy. I no longer believed God was preparing a place for us in heaven. I decided that this short, fragile existence is all I have, all we have. A shadow had fallen over my life, and I grieved long and hard over my own death and the finality of it. But there was another side to all of this, and it was totally unanticipated. As I wrestled with all of this and pondered the realization that our lives are not part of some grand design or script. Being here seemed all the more miraculous, and I fell more deeply in love with being alive. Surrounded by ultimate meaninglessness, I rejoiced over the fact that our own small corner of the universe is blooming with life and consciousness. It was that great paradox. The things that once gave my life value and purpose had disappeared, but life itself took on new meaning. Everything seemed more beautiful and poignant than ever. I experienced totally opposite sensations. I went through them both at once. On the one hand, I felt a terrible loss and I grieved over the finality of my death. On the other hand, I took possession of my life with a childlike enthusiasm. I eagerly tore off the wrapping paper and took full possession of this precious gift. It's interesting. Most people seem to assume they're destined for eternity and that this is what gives life meaning. But when we look around every day, The tragedy that we see is people going through life only half-tuned in to their own experiences, taking their lives for granted, using their faith as a barrier to curiosity and wonder. And yet in my own case, it was religious disillusionment that made me profoundly aware of the preciousness of every moment and every breath. When we talk about embracing opposites, we're not just referring to our feelings. We're talking about a way of living our lives from day to day. Embracing opposite means that when there's something important that we're trying to do, we do the very best that we can to accomplish it. We throw ourselves into it. We care very deeply about the outcome. And yet, on some other level, we proceed without worrying and without feeling that our personal worth is at stake. We learn to care and not to care at the same time. And caring and not caring complement one another. 
because we're doing our best, we relax and we go about it in a carefree way. And then because we're relaxed and not uptight, we're more likely to achieve our objectives. I'm only an amateur musician, but I'm learning how it works. When I'm practicing a difficult passage on my recorder, I need to go over it again and again, slow it down, work on it note for note. But when it's time to play that thing with a group or perform it in front of an audience, then I have to stop trying so hard and just let the notes I've rehearsed play themselves. I need to disappear into a zone of total concentration and relaxation and give myself to the music. If I'm nervous and worried about making mistakes, my playing won't be musical, and ironically, it won't keep me from making mistakes either. In fact, I'll make more mistakes. Not long ago, I was in the library, and I came across a book by Marvin Shaw entitled The Paradox of Intention. The subtitle caught my eye. Reaching the goal, it said, by giving up the attempt to reach it. It was a book about the art of achieving something by not working so hard at it or too hard at it. It was a book about trying and yet not trying at the same time, about caring and not caring. And of course, the book was loaded with examples. It pointed out, and of course, I'm getting old enough to really vibrate to this one, how when we can't remember names, the name will come to us when we're not trying to remember it. It reminds us that sexual satisfaction is achieved when we're carried along by mutual pleasure, while trying too hard has the effect of impeding gratification. Likewise, it calls attention to the fact that one of the simplest and most ordinary things we do is accomplished by relinquishing all effort. It is the act or the non-act of falling asleep. But possibly the most important example of trying and not trying in the entire book is the reminder that we're most likely to find happiness not when we're consciously looking for it, but when we're happily pursuing other goals and activities. The paradox of intention goes on to explore how the mystery of trying and not trying goes to the heart of religion. For thousands of years, religions have distinguished between our physical bodies and an inner self, which somehow belongs to an immaterial soul of the universe and exists beyond time and space. And in this context, believers are taught that they don't really belong to this world, and as a result, they should carry out their daily chores and duties in a spirit of detachment and serenity. Likewise, a number of religions emphasize salvation by grace. You heard that I went to a Lutheran seminary, so I had plenty of that. It's a religious teaching that revolves around the futility of trying to please God and earn his favor. All we need to do is open ourselves up to God's goodness and let that goodness transform us. One of the most difficult aspects of learning to embrace opposing attitudes and strategies has to do with our ability to experience both emotional joy and pain and our contentment with allowing them to coexist. 
It means having eyes and hearts that are open to the good and the bad in life, and minds that can wrestle with optimistic and pessimistic appraisals of future possibilities. And it means, I believe, being grounded in a deeper form of tranquility and happiness that integrates joy and sorrow, pleasure and pain. As a pastor, counselor, and friend, I've tried to practice, model, and teach this kind of emotional range and health. But after trying to do it for a large part of my life, I can tell you it isn't easy. The world is full of people with serious psychological injuries, frequently injuries they suffered as children. And as a result, they don't have the emotional agility and confidence to pull it off. They're not capable of either deep emotional involvement or transcendence. So many people remain trapped behind their defenses. They keep the world at arm's length, including insights and interactions that could transform their lives. They cling to the safety of emotional neutrality, avoid intellectual and social risk-taking, and wall themselves off from their own experiences. Often they've abandoned the real world in favor of big-screen, high-volume, popular entertainments. They go around acting as if they have everything figured out and everything under control when they are actually struggling to keep their heads above the water. I try as much as I can in my own ways to send a message to all of these folks that genuine happiness includes sadness and joy. It is not a case of either or, or of finding some placid and reasonable golden mean between precarious extremes. It is a case of both and, joy and sadness, a case of being fully present in our feelings, experiences, and endeavors, but also being simultaneously detached and above them. It is being a bridge over troubled water. There's another book I've read recently. It's called Learned Optimism, and it's by Martin Seligman. Some may recognize the name. He has a pretty well-known book on happiness. Generally, I like Seligman's work. It's based on genuine scholarship and research, and he's trying to have a positive impact. But I had a really strange experience with this book. Seligman assumes that optimism is good. I'm getting caught in my wire here. That optimism is good and that pessimism is bad because he believes that optimism holds the key to a happy, productive life. In his book, he provides a test for his readers to take to see how optimistic or pessimistic they are. The test provides a series of things, good or bad, that could happen to us, and for each of them, two possible explanations as to why they happen. And readers are supposed to choose the explanation they like best, the one that seems to make the most sense. Here's an example. You, get, you gain weight over the holidays, and you can't lose it. Explanation A, diets don't work in the long run. Explanation B, the diet I tried didn't work. If it happened to you, which explanation would you choose? Well, I took the test. I followed the instructions for adding up my score, and my final score was minus five. 
which showed me to be a very pessimistic person, in all likelihood seriously depressed, and possibly in need of professional help. <laughs> But when I began to look closely at what were considered to be optimistic and pessimistic answers, I began not to like the test. On not being able to lose weight, for example, I answered that diets don't work in the long run. But the way the test is scored, that's a pessimistic answer. Choosing explanation B, the diet I tried, didn't work, is more optimistic. It allows for the possibility that there's some other diet that will work. The problem is, I think my answer is closer to the truth. <laughs> And in my case, as you may see, it's not really pessimistic for me to say so. I've never struggled with weight problems, and I've never dieted. Here's another item from the test. You stop a crime by calling the police. Explanation A, a strange noise caught my attention. Explanation B, I was alert that day. I chose A. But no, that's a pessimistic answer too. I'm not giving myself credit for doing a good thing. But why is that pessimistic? I think I'm alert every day. <laughs> I work hard when I'm studying or writing or playing my instruments. Ironically, I'm most likely to notice something unusual when I'm not concentrating. Then there was another one. You win the lottery. A, it was pure chance. B, I picked the right number. I chose option A because that's what lotteries are, pure chance. But of course, as you now already guess, option B is the better answer, the more optimistic answer, the, op the answer I chose. I don't give myself credit for picking the right answer. Whoa, I thought, is that optimism? By this point, I was genuinely annoyed. <laughs> There were 48 of these little exercises. And in all innocence, I managed to choose the wrong answers, the pessimistic answers, with amazing regularity. <laughs> Unfortunately, before I made an appointment with a psychiatrist, I saw there was another test in here, in the next chapter, a test developed by the National Institute for Mental Health to see whether a person is depressed right now. These questions were more conventional. How's your appetite? Well, I never had problems with appetite. The quality of your sleep at night, your energy level, your ability to concentrate and work, your capacity for enjoying everyday activities, your relationships with other people. On this test, I was just fine. I had no functional signs of depression. Now, I know I'm, I'm biased, but I think that the contradictory results I had on these two tests support the very point I'm trying to make. They point to the fact that you can have pessimistic reactions to things you've seen and experienced without being unhappy or depressed. You can feel sad and be moved by the tragic nature of life and still be filled with joy, energy, and a love of life. In fact, I believe that this high-octane mixture of contradictory feelings can be very liberating and creative. I've been through many experiences which have shown me just how close joy and sadness really are. 
and how genuine happiness resides in our ability to experience them both. Through the years, I've always had a certain attraction. I shouldn't confess these things. Attractions to monks and mystics and people who renounce worldly pleasures and riches. I think maybe it had something to do with going into the ministry in the first place. But I've never been attracted to a worldview that denies our mortality and says that we are essentially immaterial, eternal souls temporarily imprisoned in bodies. Believe me, I'm not particularly happy with physical limitations, and getting old is not the easiest thing in the world. But I am certainly wrapped up in the physicality of my existence. When I speak of living with contradictions, I'm not advocating some kind of mind-body dualism. I'm talking about embracing life with all the energy and all of our feelings and experiencing the totality of our physical lives. I often think about a week that my wife and I spent with our kids and several friends and family members on Squam Lake in New Hampshire. This is the famous Golden Pond Squam Lake. We were all people who loved the water, and Squam Lake is a swimmer's paradise. Beautiful water, warm, sunny days, and cool nights. But this time we went up a little earlier than we normally went for the last week of June, and it rained all week, every day. And not just that, but an unseasonably cold, bone-chilling rain. The water temperature was in the low 60s. The air temperature dropped into the 40s. Nobody else ventured into the water or even went out in a boat. But I was determined, and I swam every day. Each day, I coated myself with baby oil to seal my skin and my pores. I put on my swimsuit, and I wrapped myself in my beach towel, and I walked shivering in the rain down to the water. I promptly dropped the towel, waded in up to my knees, and lunged into the water and began swimming rapidly and steadily. Once I got over the initial shock and found a rhythm, I discovered that the cold wasn't too bad. And I began to appreciate the beauty and the solitude of that experience. I swam along the shore about 100 yards out. Except for me and the rain, there was no activity on the lake. The mountains had disappeared into the clouds. The cabins and the houses that were visible from the water looked dark and empty except for a couple that had curls of smoke rising from their chimneys. I swam way off to a dock about three-quarters of a mile away and then turned around the dock and swam back. It was too cold to pause there or even to slow down. It was an extremely physical, nonstop effort. Yet it was also a kind of -of out-of-body experience, too. There was only the sound of exhaling into the water and the rhythm of arms slicing through the surface. I felt like the focal point of the whole universe. I was beyond gravity in deep space. I had ventured into a vast emptiness, and I was being emptied myself. 
I was as fully alive as a warm-bodied creature can be in a cold universe. It was a near-death experience. When I got back, I took a warm shower, dressed in jeans, a flannel shirt, and a sweater. I prepared a cup of tea, and I joined the others in the living room in front of the fire. They were playing cards and talking and joking and eating popcorn. A symphony by Jan Sibelius was playing in the background. What a joy it was after my space journey to be back on Earth in the company of precious friends. It was a world of contrast, physical effort and sensuous warmth and comfort, incredible solitude and human companionship, the cold and the dark and the fire. I loved both dimensions of my life and how they complemented each other. I had a wonderful contentment with being alive. So we embrace contradictions. We embody them in our daily lives. At the core of all these contradictions is a powerful sense of self and a strong ego, even as we detach ourselves from our egos and live on the edge of self-abandonment. We swim all alone in the cold, dark waters. We are at the center of the universe, alive and triumphant. But we also know that soon enough we'll be gone, and the whole universe too, and it will be as if we had never been.